Hello and welcome to Dinis Guarda Cities ABC Open Business Council series. We are here again with another fantastic uh, personality and uh, an inspiring author and as well someone that has been in the industry for some time building amazing things both in the corporate world but as well writing fantastic books and inspiring things. So I welcome to our series Werner Sanke that is joining us from London where he's based and uh, that has a profile that cannot be put in one simple box. It's out of the box in a lot of ways. So Werner Sanke is an independent director and chairman um, of Audit Committee, Atos SE, and the previous chairman of Ferminich SA Switzerland. And um, he was the, C the previous CEO of uh, Racket and Coleman PLC. And he's been working in a very high profile. Atos is one of the biggest tech companies in the planet. Although probably most of people don't heard about, don't, don't know probably about Atos, but it's the company behind the technology for the Olympic Games and one of the big leading French, probably the leading French tech company, but as well one of the top in the world in terms of uh, uh, clients and in terms of business and in terms of innovation as well. And um, in, the, in, the, in the profile of Vermin, we could go through the quantity of amazing profiles they've been having, as, and I'll just touch some of them because it's really impressive and I think it's important for the context of the interview. So he was chairman of Thomson Trouble Group, Gala Group, um, Person, um, non-executive director for Person, um, Photomy International Chairman, um, director of Zurich Insurance, 1998 to 2012, and uh, as well founder and board member uh, of UK Food Standards Agency from 2000 to 2005, and non-executive director of Copper Holding from 2001-2007. So this is an impressive number of companies uh, that a lot of people probably will take multiple lives to be, but it's really <laughs> impressive for no? And um, I would highlight as well, of course, he has a, a second career or parallel career as an author um, that has been looking um, in terms of building uh, both coaching and both building inspiring narratives around personal holistic wellness and uh, lifestyle and leadership, but as well how to look at these different things that you can actually look. Um, and as well as someone very involved in making a uh, relationship between philosophy, cognitive psychology and spirituality, but as well very important in leadership, coaching and mentoring, which is key for business, for everyone around the world and especially personal leadership. So is two major books and there's more coming and we're going to talk about that. Uh, the last one is The Way, Finding Peace in Turbulent Times, that is co-authored with Katie Lockwood. That is, uh, I was just read some reviews, a provocative, enlightening, and highly readable. The way it provides a unique perspective on our troubled times. Uh, this is a quote from Lynn S. Payne and John McLean, professors and senior associate dean for international developing at Harvard Business School. And uh, his previous book was The Stairway to Happiness, which is a beautiful title that uh, examines what happiness really is and the different levels of what can be attained and the techniques to be applied to achieve happiness for oneself, which I think is more important than ever, especially on these COVID uh, um, uh, times and the very turbulent as well, uh, different areas. So I'm particularly excited to welcome Werner to our series. I think there's much more we could be reading here, 
but I think we're going to be touching both his uh, corporate and business career, which is quite impressive. And of course, his work as an author, which is even more impressive. So, Vernu, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Denis, and um, thank you for having me. So, Vernu, I want to start uh, with, um, with uh, this wealth of experience and, and as well mastering both the words and mastering the leadership, which is not easy because leadership is very difficult, especially in the position and the organizations that you've been leading, which are some of the top in the planet or the top in the planet. Um, I would start by your background. So your childhood, you mentioned about your father previously in my calls, but um, what I'm interested is someone that built these achievements, this career comes with a, um, a lot of affection, a lot of passion, but as well a capacity to master themselves and master an history. So let's start with the beginnings of that history. Well, I, yes, I was, I suppose, to, uh, my, my father was a big influence on me. He was an um, extremely bright man, very cultured, um, very um, multidimensional in his own approach. He was a top businessman and came to a very senior position in Unilever. So he'd been in the Unilever Corporation for 40 years. Um, so when I started out, uh, I was sent to boarding school because at the time my parents were living in, in France. And so I was sent off to boarding school. And, um, and so I had to learn to fend for myself quite early on. And then my mother died when I was 13, on my 13th birthday. And that was another need to actually, you have to sort yourself out because you're on your own. You know, you, you're going to have to work on on yourself. Um, and I learned very quickly to be resilient, to accept the fact that it's, that's how it is. So there's no point in moaning or complaining. You just get on with it. And then I was given opportunities uh, to lead, to lead in sports teams, to lead in the house teams and so on. <clears throat> and all of a sudden that had a, a huge impact on my behavior because as soon as I became responsible for something, uh, I, everything changed. I mean, everything I would do would be effectively for the welfare of those who were in my charge. And I went straight, I went from, uh, from school to university and I had to do, I had to pass all the exams, but it was a lot easier for me than it had been for my father. He would had a very difficult, he came from very humble origins. I was privileged to have very good schooling and went to, to, to Oxford. Um, and then obviously I, I didn't think too much about what, what I was going to do because it was, I'd had experience in business and I thought that was great. So I went straight into uh, Reckitt and it was the food business, the Coleman's business. And again, I was given opportunities very early on in my career. Within two years, I was asked to run a piece of business within the food industry. And it was a piece of business nobody else wanted to run. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. Thoroughly enjoyed it. The next thing I know, I'm invited down to headquarters to set up some marketing for the group that was at that time going into strategic planning was a great thing. And they needed somebody who knew something about marketing. Well, I didn't know very much about marketing, but I guess I knew more than some of the others. I learned my finance there. And before long, I was sent off to France to set up a planning department there. And by the age of 28, I was asked to run Scandinavian businesses from Denmark. Probably an accident because I think the HR department got my, my uh, data wrong. They thought I had 
run bigger pieces of business, but I had never run it. So there I was with uh, factories, sales forces, and so on. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. And all the people around me were older, much more experienced. Um, and, and the question then is, well, what's your role? And the role is to listen, to help them to grow, to allow them to help me to become a better leader, to work together, to work in, in, in alignment. So for example, when trucks came in from Germany where we were short of supplies, everybody came out, including me, on the Sunday with the family, unload the trucks, right? Wonderful. And then from there, I was asked to become the PA to the chairman and chief executive at the age of, I must have been just over 30. And then I'm sent to France to run a, a business, which was probably at a time the fourth largest business in the group. And the same thing there, I was surrounded by highly competent people. They were superb people. And they, um, they took the trouble to educate me on their specialities. So they, were, they had much more experience in any of their specialities. Um, and that was a wonderful education for me. But my leadership to them was, I will help you to work together. We will have a team which you're going to be, which you're part of, which you're going to lead. And I will make sure the communication with headquarters is superb. And that business became the second most profitable business. So then I was sent to the UK. Same thing happens again. Wonderful people. I went to the US. So I ran the US business. And the next thing I know, I'm chief executive at the age of 41 or something. And so really, I felt a little bit, you know, a little bit of an imposter because I, my, my own personal experience of different aspects was, was quite limited. But what I had and the, the awareness I had was that if you have really, really good people and you let them get on with the things that they know how to do and you're there to guide and to help and to coordinate and to get alignment, then everything will be fine. The great risk with leadership is you start to interfere. You start to believe a hype. You know, my goodness, you must be fantastic. You know, you're CEO of a, of a big corporation. You, you must be brilliant. But no, I'm not. Right? I'm not at all. They're brilliant and I am privileged to be leading them. And therefore, how do I do that well? How do I do that to the best of my ability? Recognizing their brilliance, not mine. Right? And, and it's very tempting because the ego loves to be cajoled and to be encouraged and it doesn't like to be to feel that it's in any way reduced, which is aspects which we deal with in our books. But um, and that's a great temptation. It's a great temptation to believe this hype. Right? But we're all human beings. We all have our role to play. And if we play it correctly, with respect, with humility, then things will happen. And things will happen well. And well, so I was chief executive for seven years of that business. And when we merged with another company, I, I took the opportunity then at the age of, of 50 to decide to go plural because I wanted more experiences. And that's when I started doing, I became chairman of Thompson Travel. I, I was invited to set up and or be part of a setup for the Food Standards Agency which was mirrored on the US FDA, but without the D, so it's food standards, across the whole of the UK. Fantastic experience working with the um, Department of Health, Department of Agriculture in the UK. So this was a, 
a, a government role, but we were lay people. And we created, we had our board meetings and we had them in public. So we were first government group that said, no, no, we will have all our board meetings in public. The public can attend and the public can see what we're doing and can ask questions. So, which, you know, was quite a shock to the system, but it worked absolutely fine. And then from a business side, I, I joined a number of companies as chairman. Um, and you mentioned some of them, a Gala Group, um, Firmanish, which is a wonderful company, one of the leading fragrance and flavor companies in the world. I was chairman of that. I was part of Kofra, which is a very big private European uh, company. Um, I was part of Pearson, which at the time owned the Financial Times and very big in education. Um, and I was a non-executive director there for, for 12 years. And then I was on the Zurich board, this in insurance. And I was there for 12 years as well. And then during that time, I was invited to come on to um, Atos. And Atos is an absolutely outstanding company as well, with the most talented people. Um, and it's just a delight to be part of a group that, um, that has such competence. And um, the relationship I have with my colleagues is, is excellent. Um, so, you know, I, I, what do I know about? I couldn't, I couldn't write a program to save my life, right? But that's not why I'm there. Right? I, there are people who can do those things. I mean, so what do I know about cybersecurity? I mean, it's a major area for, for Atos. The answer is I, 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 am, I am as drowned as anybody else in the speed in which this thing is happening. But there are fantastic people there who know what they're doing. And the question then is, where do we put the investments? How do we put the investments? What are the standards and values that the company needs to hold on to? Because in a fast-changing environment where everything is up in the air, it is important to have very strong values. What really matters? And that is a no-compromise piece. That is a no-compromise piece. So, so, you know, this is what we do. This is how we do it. And we have to adhere to those principles. And if we adhere to those principles and have a purpose, then the youngsters who want to have a purpose in their lives will come and join us. And it's a battle today. It's a battle for talent. Um, and so individuals, youngsters coming out of university, they want to work for a company where they will learn something, they will, they will grow, and where they are contributing to the world. So it's not enough just to say, well, I'm in this and I just make money, because who cares about that? It's not important. What's important is to build something. I want to build something. I'm not just carving stones. I'm helping to build a cathedral. And that's the difference between the, the stone cutter and the, and the stone cutter with imagination and with creativity. So that in a nutshell is how I've arrived at, at where I am. I suppose if, if I was to try and encapsulate it in a couple of phrases, one would be um, leadership shows up in the inspired actions of others. The second would be, there is no end to possibilities when it doesn't matter who gets the credit. And the third, which is probably a bit more obscure, but I can explain it later, is the leader does nothing, but leaves nothing 
undone. Now that is Zen, a Zen proverb from uh, the Tao Te Ching, from Lao Tzu. Very profound, right? But all three are really important. And if more leaders around the world could just pick those three up, say, what does that mean? What does that mean? And how am I part of that? I think we would probably find that the workplace would be a nicer place to work and the effectiveness would be higher. Wow, inspiring. So let's go to these three lists. I have a lot of things about your background, but I, wanna, I think these three lists are fresh. So can you go for the three, especially the, the quote from, uh, um, from the Chinese uh, leading well, I can I can start with that. Um, so the leader or the master does nothing but leaves nothing undone. So what does that mean? So if you take, for example, so supposing I'm in a, a board meeting and somebody, or in, in, a, in, a, in a meeting and I happen to be the senior person there, and somebody, but somebody then will say to me, um, what should I do? Um, it would be very tempting to say, well, here, it, here, this is what you should do, and this is how you should do it. What this proverb says is, my answer is, I don't know. So the reaction then back is, oh, what? How come you don't know? And I, my response is, why should I know? He said, well, you've got all those titles. I said, but they're just titles. Oh. And then you wait. And then they say, oh, well, supposing I did this. So, yeah, carry on. And supposing I organized a meeting with these people. And supposing I got in contact with that. And supposing I went to the clients and did it. Very good. So the leader has done absolutely nothing, but he's left nothing undone. Because by the act of not interfering, but by encouraging, by, by supporting, by developing that person, they have come to their own sensible conclusion. And quite frankly, in 99.9% .9 of cases, the people who come to you with problems know the solution already. And that applies not just to business, it applies to the people we coach. So if somebody comes along with a psychological issue, or they would describe it as a psychological issue, they actually already know what they should be doing. It's just they're not doing it. So the leader does nothing but leaves nothing undone. It's very profound. It is called, otherwise called Wu Wei, which means effortless. It's effortless. You're going with a flow. You're going with a flow. Now, it doesn't mean to say you accept everything, because if there's bad behavior, you put your hand up, right? It's not right, right? But it's a philosophy that says, but I will not interfere with things that other, which are done best by other people or where the responsibility is with somebody else. It's very easy. And in today's society, just look what's happening here. Everybody's putting the blame on everybody else, right? It's because of them. It's because of them. They say, whoa, whoa, whoa. The responsibility is ours. We have a responsibility to make these changes. So it's all very well saying, well, all these people are polluting the ocean. To which I say, well, and what are you doing? What are you doing in your own life to stop this? Have you, have you stopped driving a car? And you soon find that most people, including me, we are not doing as much as we could or should. And we sow sympathy. We're great at sowing sympathy. So on the, on the whole question of inclusion and wellness and, and, and disability, 
we're all very sympathetic. Oh, we're a poor person, poor person. Yeah. And, and we say that in order to reduce our sense of guilt. So I've expressed sympathy, so I'm okay then. But you haven't actually done anything. Right? It's about doing. We're terribly good at blaming, at avoiding, at feeling sympathy for ourselves, at protecting ourselves in the guise of protecting other people. And we're very poor at actually doing something. So it's all very well complaining, but don't bring me a complaint. Tell me what you're going to do. I think I'm speechless, but I have a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> I'm sure so, you have. Most, <laughs> most people do. Most people do. These are so pointed. Just, you know, I don't know the answer to it. I don't know the answer to anything, but I can point. No, but this as well. Uh, I think it's, uh, for instance, uh, if I look myself as a writer, and if I look myself as an author, and I look myself then as a CEO, as a CEO, unfortunately, I cannot. I've been trying that. And it's very complicated. So I would like to, before I go, I want to touch my part, probably the coaching part, I'll need that from you. But I, I will start with one thing, and I think that's very important. So you've been leading the biggest corporations in the planet, uh, and not just one. We're talking about a lot of them. Well, so, well they're big. I've contributed to it. I have contributed. I know, of course, it's always a teamwork, but, but you are in very big positions. So yeah. my, and you are still in big positions. That is, is a multi-billion dollars, one of the biggest corporations in the planet. But my question is, so with your achievements, let, let's look at one part that uh, for me, it's very important. And it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a provocation, but I think I like the part that you mentioned, because for me, it's my biggest struggle as a leader as well. So is, and even as a father, uh, because it's not easy as well. So I think let's start with the, how do you deal with failure? Because your career is, is a success after success in a lot of ways, but I'm sure that there's a lot of, uh, and I think the way you put it, you put it in a, fantastic, inspiring way, and your books as well. But I would like to just, let's start with the failure, because for instance, France, which you were partly educated, and Atus is in the French company, and I am partly French as well from my family. It, and Europe is a country that, or is a continent that deals very badly with failure. And, uh, and we have big corporations, and then you have small SMEs and startups, and there's difference as well in the, the different areas. So I would like to hear that part before we go more into the books okay. and the other things, because I think that's uh, probably the biggest complexity is that we have um, a very fragmented leadership and a very fragmented uh, business ecosystem that is quite complex. And as well, that's probably why we have so much paradox in our society that have been actually um, increasing, unfortunately, in the last couple of uh, years, although we have as well fantastic achievements as well. So I just like to touch that part how you deal with the frustrations, with the, the failure of companies, with the problems. Because for instance, that part is, of course the inspiration is great, but in the end of the day, it's like the leader. I love what you said, because that implies that the team has to be completely aligned and the leader has to empower the team to do it right. But how do you do that? That's my question, because I think that's the, that's the, the complexity, especially for someone that is in so much bigger roles. Well, well, I think the answer is it's a continuous learning process. So, how do you do it? You, you, you keep learning all the time. And I think you've got to start with the right base. The first is our education system is really re rewards, rewards individual success. Right? And so we talk about teamwork, but how do we remunerate people 
we remunerate them individually for the most part, right? And at schools, we say, you know, work together boys or work together girls, and, but actually it's the top of a class is held by one person. It's not. So everything we've done, and this is very much covered in the book, everything we do is about achievement of self. And there is therefore the accompanying feeling that failure is a disaster. Right? No, it's not. If, you, if you're not able to fail, you're not able to learn. One of our biggest problems is that in our society, generally, failure is seen, as you have explained, as a great negative. Well, no, no. Erickson said, I failed 10,000 times before I, I worked out what one thing is. And those 9,999 times I failed have explained to me what, it do what, what doesn't work. So now I know what does work, right? Failure is not failure. The only way you can grow is to make mistakes, right? And so with children, if, they, if children don't make mistakes, they will never learn anything. You learn much more, you retain much more by recouping from your mistakes than you do by plain sailing, because you don't learn anything. If it plain sails, you don't learn anything. So yes, you know, what is success? Success, you know, where you've described it, and indeed most, everybody describes it, they see, they see the CV and say, oh, he did this, he did this, he did this, he did this, right? As, as if it was a complete plain sailing, you know, nothing but successes. But in between all those, there were loads and loads and loads of failures, loads of mistakes. Um, and I mean, and huge numbers of mistakes. But obviously, in the business environment, you want to make sure that they are at a level which is not going to be catastrophic for the business. Right? So at every level, and if you ask people to do things, don't set them up to fail, obviously. But if they make a failure, make sure, but as they're trying, but, but what you're asking them to do, if it doesn't work out, is not going to be catastrophic. It's manageable. And that's risk management. Right? So risk management is fine. Um, expecting no mistakes is utterly wrong. You must make mistakes. That is how you learn. And you'll find the best leaders, if they're honest, have made loads and loads of mistakes. I mean, I tell people very happily, but I can't think of a single decision I've ever taken which wasn't substantially changed by my discussion with the teams. All right. So in other words, this is, a, this is what you should be, we should do. So I'm thinking, I read it through a thing, I think, well, this is what I think we should do, right? Fortunately, I have a good sense to discuss it <laughs> with a team. And as a result of that, or the family, right? and as a result of that, whoa, I'm so glad I didn't take my decision just by myself. Because almost every time, it's significantly improved by that exchange. So one... Failures, you, you must accept that failure takes place. You must accept that people make mistakes. As long as they learn from it, what did you get from it? Because we try and hide these mistakes, because we're frightened of them, we try and get past them or we excuse them or we do everything except facing them. I made a mistake. So what? I'm going to learn from it. And this is what I can learn from it. Move on instead of feeling guilty about the past and this and that. That's why people are so anxious. They're terribly anxious about what happened yesterday and what they did or didn't do. And then they are very anxious about the future. You know, wow, gosh, what does that mean? And I say, hold on, guys. The only place that you can live life is now. Now, right now. Right? 
enjoy what's happening right now. And if you are spending all your now time fearing what happened in the past or worrying about the future, that's the phrase, get a life. And I don't know how many times I've said to people, just get a life. They say, oh, what can I do with my life? I said, just get one. Just get one. Just, just enjoy these fantastic things. You never get time to do anything. So you spend, and I have, you know, people I coach, and then some are extremely wealthy people who work all their lives, you know. So they work really, really hard to have money, and then they need to spend that money on their health because their health has obviously gone shot up. They need to spend the money on their divorce because I don't know. They need to help the money on their children's psychological problems because, of course, that's all being caused. And then they're all on their own. And they don't know what to do with it. How many houses can you live in, right? How many cars can you drive in at the same time? Right? We ha- we have, the values are all wrong. There is nothing wrong with wealth, cre- wealth creation. Please don't think that that's a tremendous thing to do, to develop wealth. But what do we mean by wealth? We mean a holistic approach to life. We mean making life better for loads of people, creating new opportunities, creating new ways of living. Right. Those are the things we're talking about, giving our children an opportunity to be emancipated, to do what they are capable of doing, because life is endless possibilities, if only we could see it. Well, inspiring and beautiful, and I completely am with you. So, so let me touch one thing, and I want to go. So um, let's go back to your corporate career, because, of course, uh, uh, the quantity of companies you've been leading are very different from French to UK to US and, and the Nordics as well that you touch. So um, how do you, how have, been, have you been, and most of these, company are multi, these companies are multinationals that have a lot of different cultures and different ways of leadership. For instance, you live in Sweden or in Denmark, if you raise your voice, it's considered like violence or it's considered something, whereas in Spain, raising the voice is normal in Portugal. Um, so I just wanted to, to, how do you dealt not only with the leadership, but as well with the cultures within the leadership? So I think that is a very important thing, especially nowadays with everything happening in the world and this technology takes a front seat in, the, in any company because companies are becoming technology companies, any company, not just status, but any company in the planet. Well, I mean, core values, respect for people. You know, it doesn't matter what culture it is. It really doesn't, anywhere in the world. And I've been all around everywhere, right? And if you show respect and sensitivity and you have natural warmth and it's obvious that you're enjoying those people's company, that you enjoy their culture, I haven't come across anybody who as a result of that has said, oh, I don't want to work with you. That doesn't happen. So respect, sensitivity, understanding, compassion, kindness, generosity, humility, um, they go an awfully long way. I, I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know of any culture that doesn't respond to those basic values, not one, not one, anywhere in the world. They all will respond to that. And it's not about wealth or status or anything. If you are genuinely caring about what they're doing, why they're doing it, and how they're doing it, and you're genuinely wanting to help, and you're genuinely interested in them, um, I, I, I can't imagine, and I've never come across anybody who doesn't respond. So high voice, low voice, 
loud, don't, don't matter to me. I mean, it really doesn't matter. What, a, what is the human being really like? And in the end, the human being, underneath all this conditioning nonsense, has fantastic personal values. But you have to get beyond the ego. I love that. And I think it's sometimes you forget that, especially about the principles and about how to do that. It's, it's really very important. So coming back to the bridge, so how did you make the transition from the corporate world and uh, with your uh, achievements to become as well an author and starting to write and as well starting to coach and do leadership? Because I think that's a key element yeah. that I see your passion and as well yeah. your capacities and ex exceptional uh, as well uh, leadership because being a chairman or CEO is about leadership as well, but transform that in a way. Well, to it is, it is. I mean, but being a father um, is um, a leadership role that's very, very important. And I wish, and I, my wife and I were talking about it, I, I wish that parents were given proper coaching about parenting because the number of times you see parents and they're not, they're not malintentioned, they're very well-intentioned, but they're doing the wrong things. And as a result, they are creating problems which come back and bite them because they always do. So, so by not understanding, by through ignorance effectively, and I've been ignorance, they ignore how to do things because nobody's ever told them. They create issues which come back and they come back from the adults. So adults come to us and with issues and those issues often, very, very often, almost in, invariably have, have started off very early age where, where what they learned was, was, was not correct. So, so on the coaching side, um, I mean, right from school, what really drove me, what, what I really enjoyed was actually being able to help my colleagues. And I, was, I had responsibility in those days in, in boarding school, if you were head of house, you had significant responsibilities for the upkeep of a house. Anything that happened in the house was your responsibility. Uh, and that was quite, you know, they would never do that today. But in those days, it was quite, it was a big responsibility. And these were multinational people in there. And I, 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 I really enjoyed doing that. I wanted the house to be a really happy house that performed well in every area that it wanted to perform. And the same thing happened at university. So, so if you like, and then in my work, working with people, coaching them, and the more, you, the more senior you are in an organization, the more it is important to help coach, guide, and mentor people. In the end, as a CEO, you are spending much more time on mentoring, on quality of people, on their well-being. In other words, if somebody looks as though they're getting towards a burnout, you, you, it's your responsibility to do something about that. So it was a very easy transition to go, because that was more or less what I was doing anyway, was to go from coaching in a formal sense of CEO being responsible for business, but actually you're responsible for people. Um, an organization is an assembly of people in the end it's not just an inanimate object it's assembly of people and going from there to actually a more a more sort of structured oh well let's set up a company which we did we set up a company called the really effective development company which was a coaching company and the the lady who was my ceo for that uh, was absolutely terrific psychologist and so she helped me to learn about the psychological aspects and it was sort of putting things into place suddenly i realized oh i've been doing that 
and now I've got a name for it. I didn't realize that there was a name for this, right? And this has happened all along. So every time we're building new knowledge and we go on courses or whatever, it, 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 it's, a, oh, wow, yeah, that's a, that's a piece. And this, has got a, this is the name for it. And here's another bit that could be added to that. And so effectively, what we've developed is a knowledge base which was grounded in this, um, in this career, but which was, which was built up by, by developing additional techniques and technologies and so on, which brings us to other labels like you know, psychology, hypnotherapy, cognitive psychology, and spirituality. These are just labels, but the, the labels, underlying those labels, uh, really is knowledge and technology and ultimately wisdom yeah and i think it's it's about uh what you mentioned wisdom and but as well about lifestyle so um continuing on, on the bridge you've been doing with your books and and let's go to the last book so one of the things that you just touched is that you've been looking at the areas of both cognitive psychology philosophy and spirituality but as well leadership and sense of um sense of understanding how to lead your life, like you just mentioned before. So could you approach, first of all, about the last book that you did, um, The Way Finding Peace in Turbulent Times, which I think is a really very important book, especially because we have very complex times where especially COVID is, is creating a lot of, uh, I think it's a lot of psychological problems and a lot of, of course, economical problems and financial problems, because I think we are privileged, but a lot of people are not so privileged as we are. But uh, I would like to touch how you look at uh, the last book and, and these bridges between these different disciplines that are very different, especially for someone that comes from my profile management and leadership positions in corporate, uh, corporate uh, big groups. Yeah, well, I, I think it's important, again, from a philosophical position to understand why, why are people so stressed? Why are they so anxious? So why are these times so turbulent? So, and, 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 and why is it that, 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 that the stress levels are so high? And the answer, because actually the biggest pandemic we've got in the world is not a COVID pandemic, it's a stress pandemic. It's a huge amount of stress. And, and the health implications of that on all the health systems in the world is phenomenal. And the, the loss of productivity as a result of this stress is absolutely phenomenal. So, so that is the real pandemic is a pandemic of, of, of stress. And why does that come about? Well, again, part of our education, part of our conditioning is that we are taught to be in control, all right? So we like to control everything. We like to know exactly what is happening and why it's happening. And we like to be in charge of everything. The thing is that that is actually uh, lunacy because the world is impermanent, it is constantly changing. And so an obsession with control in a world which cannot be controlled, by definition it's constantly changing, means that we will be stressed because we're trying to do something that cannot be done, right? Now, that doesn't mean to say you shouldn't plan. Yes, of course you should plan. We shouldn't organize everything. Of course you should. But if you become obsessed with this need to be in charge of everything. And I'll explain why this has direct implications on things like the environment, right? But this desire to control everything is bound to fail. And so the more we try and control it, 
the worse it becomes, the more stressed we become, whether it's in our business life, our social life, our political life, trying to control the uncontrollable. You know, um, the first Buddhist principle is that life is suffering. And what he means by that is life is impermanent. As a sage called Dogen, who says, you must be deeply aware of the impermanence of life. It is constantly changing. That's how it is, right? So Heraclitus says, no man steps in the same river twice. It's not the same river and it's not the same man because it's constantly moving. When we recognize that and stop this obsession with trying to control everything, we're, then what happens is the mind then becomes much more flexible. This may happen or this may not happen. If this happens, I can do this. And because I enjoy life and I understand that there are so many possibilities in life, all of a sudden, these things that seem to be so obsessively important don't matter at all. Right? And if they don't matter at all, I can start to relax. I don't have to worry about them anymore. Of course, I need to plan. I'm going to make sure I come to a meeting on time. And if there's an interview, I'll be there on time, etc. Because that's important, right? But if you were to change the date or the time or whatever, that's no, no problem, right? I will do that, right? I can do that. That's flexibility. And in, you know, in having worked in an insurance company or risk management is exactly that. Risk management says, hold on, if these things happen, these might happen, what do we do to de-risk it? So good business practice is to de-risk your project. What does that mean? It says, make sure that if something like this happens, you've got an alternative, you've got an alternative, you've got an alternative. That's de-risking. So it's good business practice to realize that life is impermanent. And our obsession with control makes us very, very anxious. We can't accept what is. And part of the reason for, for that is that we assume that the wave is constantly a wave and never has a trough. So it's always up, it's never down. And we think that everything can always be good, can, doesn't don't need to be bad. And that life has to continue forever. And death, oh dear, we can't talk about that, right? So this duality, this, this belief that there's always just an up, and if we don't get the up, then, then my goodness, we're in the trough, and that must be terrible, is, is a very, very big mistake because life has both. The people who, are, who experience the greatest joy are also the people who have experienced the greatest suffering. If you want to not have, not to experience suffering, fine. Um, protect yourself and cover yourself and make sure you never take any risk, but you will never experience joy either. Life is made up of life and death, good and bad, heads and tails, north and south. If there's north and you cut the earth, you know, you're still going to have a south. It'll just be somewhere else. So you, they, are, they are different in nature, but inseparable. And that's where we make a big mistake. We think we're separate. And we keep chasing after being good. It must succeed. It must succeed. Always, 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 always. Without realizing that actually there's a trough as well. And when there's a trough, understand how you deal with it, understand how you manage it, and don't let it overwhelm you. And so many people today with COVID are terribly overwhelmed because 
they're always expecting things to be okay, right? And all of a sudden, no, they're not. And now what do I do? I panic. I get stressed. I get anxious. Um, I worry and I lose sleep and all those things, which actually, if you realize how the world is constructed and what happens in life, it's completely unnecessary. Now I'm yeah, putting an extreme, I'm putting an extreme view, but I'm putting an extreme view in order to make this point that we are obsessed with control. We are obsessed with everything always going right. And this obsession with control goes to, we're trying to control all of nature without having the tools or the understanding of how you do that. So, you know, I was reading recently that um, in, in America, in order to control the algae in, 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 uh, uh, in um, lakes, they decided to bring, this is in late 1800s, they decided to bring in carp from Europe, the big, and the big Asian carps. They now have such a problem with carp because the carp ate all the other fish and the carp has actually destroyed the algae as well. And so the vegetation has gone. And now there's an enormous effort to try and stop the carp going into the Great Lakes in North America, right? So here is a human being in his wisdom says, oh, I know how I can stop this. I'll introduce this species in there and then that'll sort it out or I'll do this and that'll sort it out or I'll cut down these trees because then we can have more ground. that'll sort this out without having the slightest idea of the implications. And all the, all the disasters you see today is human beings interfering with nature for whatever reason, right? It can be anything from basic cosmetics I, I need this product for this, so I'll knock down the trees and grow these things, to um, you know, a, a desire for, for um, extra fish, and so then I'll, I'll empty the, the oceans of the fish that I need. And this, this need to control um, nature has actually caused us to have an environmental disaster. We don't have the skills, we don't have the knowledge, and we, 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 we think we have. You know, the con we talk about the conquest of space, right? <laughs> Come on, <laughs> what words to use? You know, we are, we are this tiny, 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 tiny little thing in an enormous universe and we're going out conquest. I mean, give us a break. Yeah, it's, it's very important. And I think you touch, I think one of, for me, the most important things is how you deal with the, the daily uh, obsession with the now but in a, an obsession with not the now, the obsession of control. And we forget actually the disbalance that is like you mentioned, coming from the, the Asian philosophy, but as well, it, you find it in any philosophy in the world that is the balance with yourself, with your environment and with your community, which I think is partly broken, partly by, by our increasing um, uh, obsession with the news, with the real time information, real time things. So. How do you deal, and I think this is particularly interesting, I want to come back to the book, but before that, especially in the areas of research that you've been doing, both as, of course, your experience in leadership and as well your decades working with multiple organizations with thousands of, of, uh, of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people, some of them, and uh, with the sense of the, the technology progression, because in the last two decades, technology is partly making us addicted. Most of the studies from Apple to your company and others companies are, are really conscious about the implications when it comes especially to the addiction that this provokes. 
and as well this creates a kind of a, a, a breaking situation because at the moment and, and I speak for myself, unfortunately, is that our devices are kind of controlling part of our routines and are becoming part of this. And for instance, I see this affecting me as a father, me as an husband, me as a, 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 a member of a community, because of course, we are always trying to be on top of things and things like that. And you touched that. But I would like, from your perspective, and coming back to the book, how would build that, especially because we have the stairway to happiness. And I think happiness, of course, there's, all the stereotype, but in the end of the day, happiness is, a, is about the levels that can be obtained, which is something that you have in the book. But I would like to touch that specifically in the relationship with the technology and the real-time obsession of the technology that is, in one end, of course, facilitating amazing things, like us being talking here during COVID and millions and billions of people still moving forward with the economy, but at the same time, creating a lot of issues on these directions. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an absolutely key question. Um, you see, t technology has the capacity for fantastic good, as you yourself know, the fact that we're able to talk together. It, the, the, the development of a vaccine would not have been done, could not have been done without enormous, enormous improvements in technology. And that is not just the, the, the methods but all the research way, the ways in which the research is done, and the use of computery, by the way, to enhance um, the handling of all the data. So, I mean, one of the things Atos does is it also makes high-performance computers. And those high-performance computers are in great demand because they are being used to treat more and more data. And it's by the treatment of the data that you can get all these solutions. So, so in many ways, there is no limit to what can be achieved with technology. All the developments in forecasting, forecasting weather, for example, is, is so much better. Um, understanding where a, you know, a tsunami to, can take place or another earthquake could take place. And understanding the implications of certain things because you can then put in many more um, levels of data to predict. So what we're trying to do better and better is, is to predict more so as to be prepared. And the capacity is huge. So when we look at things like edge computing and artificial intelligence, uh, they are going to play, at the moment they're playing a tiny role compared to what they're going to be playing. And that is fantastic news. But of course, every opportunity to develop something like that for good also has the capacity for bad. And as we get better and better at developing more and more powerful mechanisms, techniques, technologies, so we risk bigger and bigger catastrophes. And that brings us right back to our understanding of what it is that's important in the world. Before, when a catastrophe took place, or it would tend to be on a small scale. And so nobody really knew about it. It was just localized. And as we got bigger, more capable, more international, these, the capacity for, for, for catastrophe got bigger and bigger and bigger. We then get to the point where we have an, a nuclear bomb capability and it's massive. Today, it's huge, right? And tomorrow it will be even bigger. So how are we going to deal with that? 
we have to get wise. We have to change the way we think. Because the models of thinking have not changed for 5,000, 10,000 years. We are living in a world where we do not understand what's happening. And we're trying to run this machine. It's, it's new age technology. And we're trying to run it with Bronze Age understanding. And so we, we have serious risk. This is covered in actually in, in the way. Because unless we change the way we're thinking, and I have quotes from eminent scientists, the risk is that we will not be able to harness and stop a catastrophe when it occurs. We mentioned on page four of the book, the risk of a pandemic, all right? At the time we wrote it, we, COVID was nowhere, right? And, and, and people have said, oh, how brilliant. Well, we, we weren't brilliant at all by mentioning this. And in fact, it's a quote from a, a scientist. We weren't brilliant at all because any, any of a number of things could happen. Any number of things could happen today. Um, it just happened to be that COVID was one of them. But the scale of a problem today is a global scale. And we're trying to manage it with a knowledge base and a wisdom, which is, well, it doesn't, it's not even 3,000 years old because they knew, they knew more in 3,000 years ago in some parts of the world than we do today. So we have to change the way we think. We cannot continue to think the way we do now. And I describe it as, you know, we're, we're sitting on a Titanic here and we're trying to argue about the deck chairs or the band or the, you know, we have to get off this boat and go onto another boat because this boat has to shift. It has to have different, it has to be run differently than the way we currently are. And unfortunately, when you look at what's happening in the world today and the way people deal with things and whether it's politicians or others, it, 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 nothing's moved forward at all. Nothing's moved forward. And all these systems have not worked. In fact, none of them have worked. Whatever ism it is, you can, call, you can put whatever label you want on it, hasn't been successful. So we need to think differently. And unless we think differently, we, 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 our future is at risk. And it's not our future, it's not yours or mine. But I mean, I have four lovely children and seven lovely grandchildren. And I don't want them to live in an increasingly dangerous world. So the answer to this is change the way you think. You know, when, when, we, when we change the way we look at things, the things we look at change. And that's a quote from a chap called Wayne Dyer. And it's actually completely relevant to quantum physics because when you change the way you look at things, you suddenly find that the things you look at are changing. Hello, and that's Wendaya. the reality. And, that, Wendaya, my, and that's the reality. One of my favorite quotes. <laughs> well, yes, yeah. and, 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 and he's so right, you see. I mean, he's so right. And, and these have to be, this, is, this has to be the time when we start to actually shift um, the way we think and, and, and find a way to change. And how to do that and what to do it to, that's the purpose of the way. It's finding, how do you find peace in these increasingly turbulent times? So coming to your book right now, so I think in, um, especially, let's go to the stairway to happiness first. So you explained five key steps of the journey. Okay, so can you tell us about these steps? Because I think this is particularly important because I think in the end of the day, one of the things that if you look at history of humanity, is about the capacity of creating narratives, creating stories, 
and repeating these stories. And what the religions do is precise a narrative with, with a lot of mantras, a lot of uh, things that normally, dependent of our obsession with religion or not, it was created as well as a balance because uh, uh, all the religions try to create a balance for the civilizations. It's not like they want to just to jail them or whatever, independent of whatever your opinion about religion, but you're very spiritual, I am as well. So these five steps are particularly important and I would like to hear that. Um, and I think yeah. special for people listening to us because of course in my... Uh, podcast we speak a lot about technology AI and all these different things but sometimes it's good to go to basics like you mentioned and ask the, re the right questions um, and ethics and the narrative our own personal development is key about this yeah well I, I will do that and I mean you mentioned religion you see a lot of people when you mention religion they sort of <gasps> it's like mentioning God again <gasps> see but, but what, what is the image that you're getting? I mean, what most people don't know what religion means. Religion comes from the Latin, religere, which means to reconnect, reconnect, reconnect with what? Reconnect with who you really are. Reconnect by eliminating the false sense of self, your ego. Reconnect by not being obsessed with the outside but concentrating on the inside. And all the religions of the world, at their base, at their base, before they get turned into dogma and doctrine, right, which destroys them, right, um, they are saying the same thing. They're all saying the same thing. And we explain that in the book, that whether you're talking about, you know, Buddha or Hindu religions or the Sikh religion or... Zen Buddhism, or you're talking about the Catholic Church, or, or, the, or no, the Christian Church, or the or Islam. At the base of all of these, it's about goodness, it's about responsibility, it's about loving your neighbour, it's about humility, it's about gratitude. Right? It's all those things which are the core values that we're talking about but they get taken out of context. So to come to the book, the, the, stairway, the stairway to happiness was, is really to try and explain the way people feel a sense of contentment. So the first step is called instant gratification. So instant gratification means I, I want, I get. Right? And today with the internet, I want something, I'll be happy if I get it, I go and I'll go, I'll go on one of the sites and I put the thing in and it comes the next day. Oh, how fantastic that is, right? And I pick it up and the next day I've forgotten about it. And I want something else because ego is never satisfied, right? It will never be satisfied. So ego, I want this, I get it, I want the next thing. It's amazing to look at children, small children. You see, you give them their, you give them their little um, birthday present and often they're more interested in the packaging. They get more fun from tearing the, the, the paper outside and opening the box than they do from the plastic thing inside. <laughs> right. So in other words, there's something more important than the instant gratification of useless objects. So the first step is instant gratification. You get a level of contentment, but it's very, very short-lived, very shallow. The second level is the happiness of achievement. So here you are, you've gone to school and uh, you've done well. You've come top of the class, you've got a medal, you've got to get 
that, my goodness, I've done something here. I feel good about myself, right? Nothing wrong with that. And as you go on, that is a major motivator for people. I've done well. I am actually respected by society. You know, I, I've achieved this. I've achieved that. Great sense of contentment. The only, the only reason it's step two is because it's very, very selfish. It's all about me. And you soon come to realize that that's also a bit empty, really. I mean, who remembers the guy who got the gold medal 20 years ago in pole vaulting? You know, who cares? Who cares? You know, and I have, I have, we coach sports people, you know, and, and you, get, you get a sports person shortly after they won something, right? And so they, at the time they get this, the medal, they, they are, they're in a different world, right? You can see them. You can see their faces. They are, this is the happiest day of my life. Right? And then two days later, they're at the gym and everybody knows that they, they're going to stop doing this. They're not doing it anymore. Nobody wants to know, right? They'll say, oh, that's wonderful. Let's have a look at your medal, right? Okay, thanks. I've got to get on with my training now. <laughs> and, and it's a bit empty, right? So it's all very well doing this, but it's very selfish and it's very empty. So the third stage of happiness is when you start to realize that actually you get more contention from giving than from taking. If you smile at somebody, you're giving them something, and the smile you get back is fantastic, right? You've given something. You, you, you give of your time. You give of your energy. You give of your attention. Now, how often do we really give our attention to people? When children, our children come to give them your full, complete attention. It's worth every second of it, right? But often we don't have time. We don't have time to do this. Don't have time, oh, for goodness sake. You know, I want to, I've got a football match to watch, or I've got this and that. So, good. Wow. You know, what do you do? So the third stage of happiness is the happiness of giving. Much higher value. Not in terms of money, much higher value in terms of spiritual understanding and contentment, inner contentment. It's much more fun to give than it is to take. And then the fourth stage is the happiness of relationships. You know, we are human beings. We are social animals. Developing good interpersonal skills understanding the importance of emotional intelligence, using that to actually build rapport and friendships and, and, and natural warmth towards people so that when something happens, you're there. It's a fantastic feeling. I'm very lucky to live in a village, which is really a, a, an old-fashioned type of village, which, which has got all kinds of mixed community. But we all know each other and we all help each other. And and it, it goes from, from small babies to 95-year-olds. And, um, and it's great because it's relaxed. It's wu-wei. It's effortless. Right? It's just lovely. Right? And that is the relationship side. You know, we have one. Lots of things are very misunderstood. I mean, language is very, a very poor medium. But in English, we have one word for love. In Latin, they had seven words for love because it means different things. But it's a very different thing, a romantic tete-a-tete, tete, I, I love you, to um, the relationship you might have with your, with your child, or you love them dearly. Totally different type of love. And yet they're both called love. And, and so that's the fourth. And now when you find that when you do that and you literally transition 
you then find that the last stage is the happiness of harmony. It's called, in Maslow term, it's called self-actualization. It's going beyond you. It's beyond ego. It's more cosmic. It's very difficult to explain. Words are very, very inadequate because words are, are, are about logic and they're about subject, verb, um, and object. And, and this is about emotions. Um, but you reach a stage when you realize there are things much more important than yourself, um, much more important than the trappings of wealth. And you go from form, and words are form, to formless. The way I describe this, and it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit spiritual, but I, th I, hope, I hope people will understand it. Is if, if I show you this glass, right, or, or just imagine a glass, what's the most important part of a glass? This is your audience participation time, Dennis. What's the most important part of a glass? Yeah, it's the full. <laughs> I think it's what is inside of the glass. Yeah. Yeah, it's for space. Not, not what's inside, it's for space. In other words, the outside is of no value without a space inside. It's for space inside. So if you look at a room, the four walls are of no value. It's for space inside that matters. But the space inside, you can't see it, right? It's formless. But that's what really matters. And um, the other way to describe it is if you have a canvas, you know, the canvas is there and you put a painting on the canvas, but the canvas is who you are and your life story is what you, you paint on it. And, and so I think, I think it's really the happiness of harmony is understanding the formlessness of life and the importance of formless as opposed to form. Um, so that you realize your connection, so your religion, your reconnection to something which is much greater than anything you could possibly imagine. Some people call that God, right? Not a person with a big beard, whatever, but a cosmic understanding of the immensity of life. Einstein understood this. You see, I mean, Einstein realized in his, his brilliance was this recognition because he started off by trying to explain what he was doing with words and realized very quickly that words are inadequate. So he then goes into mathematical formulae. You get more and more complicated mathematical formulae all over, which is a language which is much more precise. And actually it's the language of technology. And he got to that and found relativity, right? And everybody said, my goodness, you've, 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 you've reached the ultimate. And he said, I have just scratched the surface. I've just realized the immensity of the tiny bit I've just touched. What we have is huge, vast. I've just touched this and I now realize. So what he said, and it's a quote from, from his, and Max Planck had the same, Max Planck of the Max Planck Institute. He said the, the scientist's religious feeling takes the form of a rapturous amazement at the harmony of natural law, which reveals an intelligence of such greatness that compared to it, all the systematic thinking and acting of a human being is an irrelevance. This feeling is the driving force of his life and work, 
insofar as he succeeds in releasing himself from the shackles of selfish desire, it is without question akin to that which pervaded all the religious sages of all time. So what he discovered, what he saw, was exactly what the wisdom, the wise, the wisdom, the sages of the past had said all along. He was able to prove it. So mc squared equals cosmic reality. And that's yeah. where science and, spirit, science and spirituality come together. Yeah, I'm completely with you on that scenario that I, I love as well, personally. So I, I want to touch on, we pass one hour now, so I want to be cautious of your time. <laughs> but it's, it's been flowing fantastically. Um, so one, there's a quote I love uh, that is from Peter Dahlgren, that is a professor emeritus in Sweden, that is about, um, that in your last book in particular, you unpack our deep-rooted everyday dilemmas and point to concrete patterns of thought and action that we can take. I love this quote and I love as well, because in the end of the day, this is the biggest challenge, is how to unpack the deep-rooted everyday dilemmas. Um, and that's what you try to explain in the book. So I would like to touch this, and as well, very important thing, it meshes as well, concrete patterns of thought and action, which is, yeah. I think, critical. You touched partly that, but I think it's the, this is where science and spirituality gets more, but as well on personal development, because perception is about the way we look at patterns of thought and meditation and all these absolutely. even briefings absolutely. and things like that. So I would like to touch that uh, okay. from your Absolutely. Angle. Absolutely. Um, we, we, we live very, very busy lives and we're encouraged to be as busy as we can possibly be. And the problem with that is we lose touch with who we really are. So I've asked many, many people, who are you? And I get all kinds of answers, but I very rarely get a correct answer. So somebody will say their name, they'll give their name, and say, I'm so-and-so, and say, yeah, that's fine, but that's just your name, that's not who you are. No. And they say, well, I, and then they'll talk about their job. Or they'll say they're, they're, a, they're a, a dad or a mum. And I said, well, that's just what you do. And that's a transient phase, right? When that stops, does that mean you've disappeared? Does it mean you're no longer there? Are you doing it? Who, who is I? Who is I? And eventually you realize that it's a very, very difficult question to answer, right? Because who is I? It requires some reflection. But until you understand who you really are, underneath all this conditioning nonsense, right? Because that's what it is, the conditioning nonsense of ego. Until you get that, you're lost. You're lost. You're lost in an illusion about who you think you are, which is just an image. It's not even real. It's not real. And we're chasing to protect an image that doesn't exist with means which are futile. Now, how ridiculous is that? So how do you then reverse that process? Because actually, we were not born that way. Right? We weren't born that way. We have become that way through the conditioning of life, whether it's parents, education, teaching, experience, whatever. And we have to understand who we are at the deepest level. The only way to come to terms with that and, and start to understand that is, is through silence. You need silence to be able to access your inner self. 
And it's only through understanding your inner self that you will able to, to be, you will be able to change the way you are and the way you behave, which is not unnatural. In fact, it's coming back to a natural way of behavior. Naturally, we are very benevolent to other people. Naturally, we are very social. Naturally, we want good things to happen. I mean, who wants bad things to happen, right? Naturally, we want to uh, have good relationships. These are all natural processes. They become unnatural because somebody tells us, oh, you can't talk to that sort of person, or you, you've got better, you better drive forward with this, which means you'll leave all these other people behind, right? Or we're taught to go in a different direction, and we have to unlearn that. So meditation, it gets a bad name, but actually meditation is dead simple. I mean, I can meditate in central London walking down Oxford Street. <laughs> it simply means accessing who you are without all the crap, without all the rubbish, right? And being who you are, which is a person who is connected to something that's much greater, as we all are. I, and if I'm part of you and you're part of me, then why would I want to do you any harm? I just want what's best for you. I want what's best for my children. I want to do what's best for other people. And um, I recognize the potential of ego to damage everything. So one of the aspects of silence is to observe. Uh, observe the ego, what it's doing to you. Because ego says, oh, you better do this, or this isn't... A, you can't accept that from that person, can you? I mean, that's what ego's saying. But when you actually understand who you really are, you say, well, thanks, ego. I know you're trying to protect me, but uh, no, it's all right. Ego is an illusion. Ego doesn't exist. And as soon as you allow, you don't conflict with ego, it disappears. It goes. Right? Now, that's what I mean by changing the way you think. Now, you can approach that in all kinds of ways. So you can look at it as indeed we do in the book. We look at it from, say, the point of view of letting go. What does letting go mean? And if you let go, I'm letting go the false image of ego. Right? So one way, one way. Or you can look at it from gratitude. If, I, if I'm really grateful about what's happening, how can I possibly be unkind to, un to anybody else when I'm grateful for the life I've got, for the things that I have? How can I do anything other than to want other people to have the same? Right? It, so it doesn't really matter. And what we do is we approach it in all these different ways, but they end up the same way, the same place, which is, which is I need to change the way I think and bring it back to what it always was. So people talk about a journey, and, in, and we hear a lot of this about a journey, and I say it's not actually a journey, because it's inside you anyway. And Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is within you. What did he mean by that? Exactly what I'm saying here. It is inside you anyway, if only you allowed it to come through. And you're not letting it come through because of all this conditioning that gets in the way. And it's very tempting. So somebody says, oh, you could make a lot of money doing this or that or the other, right? Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Get another car or do this, right? Fantastic. And in the right, and I've got nothing against that if it's done in the right way. So yeah, why not? It'd be fun to do this. Fine, great, right? But if you do it obsessively, which is what we tend to do, because I need to have all these trappings of ego, basically, then I can never see who I am. I'll never be happy. Ego is never satisfied, right? 
You know, there are two stages. I get what I want and I'll want more, or I don't get what I want and I'll be unhappy. Either way, you're lost until you realize it's not the right, it's not the right debate. I think these words are, um, well, wisdom and inspiration. I think everyone listening to us should actually stop to measure. There's a lot of wisdom here. Uh, Werner, it's been a fantastic pleasure. We've passed uh, one hour and a half. I, I think uh, just okay. as a last, uh, a, a last um, bridge as a summary, uh, because of course I could have asked questions for probably a couple more hours, but I think for the scope of doing this, and we're going to put links and some quotes of your book as well during the articles and, and okay, the interview. Thank you. Um, but just uh, as a summary, I think especially um, we touch your career, you touch your books and you touch as well this part's much more complex of how to deal with these dilemmas with our personal lives especially in these times and i think your book is it's a fantastic mantra and as well inspiration for these times but as well is about stopping like you mentioned the ego and there's actually for instance one of the things i try but it's not easy because you have to sometimes to if you don't show ego in some cultures it's difficult and there's a lot of different nuances but i would like just to wrap up um, I don't know what you would say, especially when it comes to COVID-19 and all the challenge we're facing. Um, like you mentioned, it's not about COVID-19, it's about the stress, because there's a, after this, all, another thing will come. But of course, probably some of them will be bigger, so they will be small. But I would like, with the technology, and you are in a, one of the biggest leading technology companies in the world, how do you see we can actually make this bridge between our tradition as humans, the wisdom, the spirituality, the philosophy, the technology that is the future is not going to stop. Like you mentioned, quantum computing is going to be just bigger. I know that Atos is working in some of the most powerful computers in the world. And as well, making the bridge of this, because of course, one of the things, uh, if you quote, for instance, another author um, that I like a lot, uh, Yuval Noah Harari. And, um, and if you look at uh, some of these books, Omo Deos, we are getting to that part, not necessarily about replacing God, I hope not, but in the sense that we have powers that were unique in history, but let's say in the last 30,000 years of history of mankind as, as we are in terms of sapient species, um, we never had the possibility of re-engineering ourselves. And for instance, just, uh, for instance, even a couple of weeks ago, and, and uh, Atos is a French company, for instance, the French government announced a public uh, legislation and regulation around biogenic soldiers. So this is happening as we speak. It's not science fiction, uh, it's now. So I would like to see how you see this precisely with the all different hats and as well as a, a coach and mentor that uh, <laughs> teaches people. It's a wonderful uh, question, Dennis, for which I have no answer that's going to be helpful to you, other than to simply repeat that i mean what you are saying is absolutely right right we are developing greater and greater capacity to do things on a scale which is unimaginable and some of that and a lot of it can be directed towards good things helpful things healthy things happy things right? But unfortunately, it can also be directed at greater and greater catastrophic outcomes. And in the end, all of technology is the work of human beings. And if human beings wish to make it into something bad, 
they are perfectly capable of doing that in the same way as they are perfectly capable of using it for benevolent purposes. We have reached now a crossroads that says, as a human race, what do we want to become? How do we want to be? Because the, the impact of a mistake today will be massive. You can't make a small mistake anymore. Every mistake is going to become bigger and bigger. So you have to have a basis of thinking which is correct. And once the basis of thinking is back to something which makes sense, which is compassionate, which covers most people, then human beings will find the way in which to put the regulations necessary to manage it in such a way that it stays benevolent. You know, human beings have the ability to do whatever they want. We have un unbelievable freedoms. As a race, we have an unbelievable freedom. It is up to us to have a responsibility to take that responsibility properly and to take our, our uh, to, you know, to have the wisdom to make the right decisions. Now, how easy is that going to be? I don't know. The answer is, is it's going to be extremely difficult. And it requires a, a spirit of collaboration, cooperation. It requires an, an understanding and making the world a much more equal place than it is at the moment. It's an extremely unequal place. We, we, could, we could easily feed the world without having any malnutrition or anybody dying of hunger. And the only reason that we're not is because human beings are still fighting in a, in a, in a way which is feudal or Bronze Age thinking uh, and is not sharing. And it's got everything it could share. We've got, we've got a Garden of Eden and we're busy destroying it. And we have to change the way we think about our Garden of Eden and recognize it and share, be unselfish, give. This is where the happiness of, you know, the, the, the happiness of giving comes in. Give, have better relationship, understand your connection to, to universe. It's energy, we're all energy. That energy can't be increased or reduced, it can only be transferred. Use that energy for good. And in the end, it's about thinking differently. So I'm sorry, I don't have any greater <laughs> No, but, but I think you, you answered that, that, answer very well. <laughs> well, I don't know. There is no answer to it except to, to, to think in a way which has the right motives. So, you know, as I was saying right at the start before we started, Dr. Dr. Um, Suzuki was asked, you know, how does it feel when you, you, under, you understand some of this, right? And he says, well, everything's exactly the same. You know, work's the same and my family's the same and everything. The only difference is I'm, I'm probably several inches off the ground. I feel like I'm several inches off the ground. I think that is uh, the most important is the, that conscious. I think you, you touch it uh, beautifully and as well uh, in a very philosophical, uh, philosophical way, because I think in the end of the day is how we come to our humanity and to the spirit of, of cooperation between us, because in the end of the day, we cannot do this, but as well, we need to come down to earth. And I think you, you touched multiple times and very wisely about the ego, because in the end of the day, a lot of these things is, is you're right for, from a t a terms of data is that we are in the best time of history of humanity um, from a pure humanity. Of course, the rest of the world is not so, the nature is not so good as, but in terms of, and ultimately nature is, is able to, destroy everything with a volcano, with an earthquake or CFK. So 
Um, I, will, I have a lot of more things, especially on your corporate uh, dealing, but I think I will let you brief a bit as well and have a break. And I'm sure we might come to a second one or a panel where we're going to talk because I think your expertise and I think this bridge between these uh, and all these different areas are critical. Thank you so much, Vernon. I will just uh, highlight... No, no, pleasure is all mine, an honor. Um, I will highlight for people listening to us that um, the books Stairway to Happiness are available on Amazon and uh, major uh, book uh, uh, selling places. And that's where the book from last year, The Way Finding Peace in Turbulent Times, which we spoke about, that I think is a collaborative project between Vernon Sanke and Cathy Lockwood. And our uh, books that I suggest and I will recommend and we'll re uh, review it as well within our websites and platforms. And we might do a special live just about the book. Thank you so much, Bernard. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you for having me. And I really appreciate your questions and your understanding. No, no, it's all my honor. And uh, like I say, I think we, I, I have to learn on that wisdom and, uh, and as well listening, because in the end of the day, leadership is about to listen and empower people. And it's not easy. It's very difficult. So your wisdom and, okay. and as well tranquility, because I know I don't have that. I'm probably too nervous. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think it's probably your wisdom that I need to learn. So <laughs> very grateful. Bye. Thanks. Bye, Thank Denise. You. Thank Bye. you so Bye. much. Bye.